Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, June 13th, 2019. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast, where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Matt Norlander is here with me and big college basketball news this week from our friend and colleague Dennis Dodd. Here are, if you missed it, the first few sentences from Dodd's story, published Wednesday afternoon at CBSSports.com. At least six Division I men's basketball programs will receive notices of allegations for level one violations from the NCAA by the summer, stemming from the federal government's recently completed investigation of the sport, a top NCAA official told CBS Sports. Stan Wilcox, NCAA Vice President for Regulatory Affairs, said two high-profile programs would receive notices of allegations by early July. The remaining four would be rolled out later in the summer in what was described as a wave of NCAA investigations meant to clean up major college basketball. And then there's a quote from Stan Wilcox. It reads this way. There's even another group of cases that we're still working on. The main thing is that we're up and ready. We're moving forward and you'll see consequences, end quote. Now, obviously, we'll get to what this means for a specific program soon enough, but big picture, here's what it means, I think. What it means is that if you're somebody, and there's a lot of you, who has spent the much of the past couple of years yelling, the NCAA isn't going to do anything, it now looks like you're wrong. Because what we have here is an NCAA vice president on the record saying the NCAA is about to levy serious allegations at at least six programs and two high profile ones are going to get it in early July. Notice of allegations, level one violations. Obviously, you know, whether the charges will hold up and the extent to which these programs will eventually be punished remains unclear and undetermined. But the NCAA is working and the NCAA is about to move on this. That's no longer up for debate, mm-hmm. according to NCAA Vice President Stan Wilcox. Norlander, your thoughts. This is sooner than I thought. Did you think that? Did you think yeah, that we? I, I did not expect this to happen as swiftly as it appears it's now going to happen now that the federal trials are behind us. Okay, many layers to unpeel here. So the timeline in this is more accelerated. That being said, um, I still do not believe that whatever schools get pinched here in this first wave, I don't believe it's going to affect what we see next season unless you have particular schools who then, if they choose to fight the allegations, which is probably the likelihood that's going to happen here, there might be some instances where the institutions say, you know what, obviously this and this and this was presented through evidence in court via the FBI's investigations. Perhaps it gets corroborated independently within a civil investigation. The schools say, our bad, we're going to own up to that. And maybe that mitigates some punishment. What you could have, and this is way down the road, the only way, because I know people listening to this are going to wonder, okay, what's going to happen to these schools next season? I don't think anything with the exception of if you have a situation like what Louisville did a couple of years ago when it fell on the sword in the year in which it was not even good enough to make the NCAA tournament, it takes a postseason ban. It'll be interesting to see if there are any programs that opt to do that, if that's in the crosshairs, whether they do or not. But if you're wondering what may or may not happen to programs for next season, I think that's the only way that you'll probably get sanctions in the coming season. Otherwise, if you have head coach suspensions or other kind of uh, punishments, the NCAA will choose to enact them the following season. But this was faster than I thought. And you mentioned Stan Wilcox. 
From what I understand, he essentially reports to Mark Emmert. He's like a top two, top three guy at the NCAA. The fact he's even talking about this, and credits to Da, this is a good story, a good get. Um, apparently, they were serving on some sort of panel, I believe, in Orlando. So Dodd happened to, to talk to him, and he was willing to say this stuff on the record, which is unusual. Because as you well know, Parrish, NCAA officials, and he did not mention specific schools because that's extremely against protocol. But even in the midst of investigations, while they might acknowledge that they're happening, um, Wilcox speaking to this effect uh, is surprising and I think is a reflection of a lot of the conversations, a lot of the urgency in Indianapolis, and then also, uh, as the, the NCAA power brokers like to refer to as, you know, the membership has probably been continually harping for months now on the fact that you had this huge case, federal trial, tons of media exposure, a lot of bad publicity for college basketball, um, there is probably a serious urgency to get this done. Um, and so the timeline surprised me. Six coming soon, two by early July, maybe even two, I was told, by the end of June. We'll see. But basically around the 4th of July, we should know something. We should definitely know at least two of these schools perish when you and I hit the road for Peach Jam in July. And then Wilcox saying what he did saying that there would be consequences, uh, even going as far as, and we'll get to Kansas in a few here, but Dodd specifically asked him, hey, we've got, you know, in one instance, a Kansas assistant entertaining the notion of paying a prospect, which was Ian Williamson, and he admitted that they don't have access to those wiretaps, so that uh, the only way that they could possibly prosecute on those grounds uh, is by interviewing anyone that they can and going from there, but they don't have actual hard evidence in that, so that will be interesting. Um before we get to the actual schools here, because I do want to play guess the schools here, we got six coming and a lot more involved. Remember, there were more than 20 schools that were mentioned in these cases. Um, before we get to the schools, though, GP, I wanted just to throw it back to you. Anything else about this story uh, that either surprised you or that you find to be noteworthy in the bigger picture? Well, like I said, I agree with you that um, this is happening um, sooner than I anticipated. I always assumed that the NCAA would um, – would send notices of allegations to schools that were uh, brought up in the federal trials, caught up in this scandal. Um, but I didn't think it would happen in June 2019. And yet here we are with this, uh, a vice president of the NCAA um, saying that notice of allegations are going to at least six schools and two of them will should receive those notices. In, in early July. I also agree with you that I don't think it'll impact the 2019-20 season in terms of punishment unless somebody self-imposes because you know how this stuff works. Notice of allegations, then a period of time to to respond. 90 and then, days. Yeah, it's just the way the calendar works, if you want to keep pushing this thing back, which is what some people thought North Carolina was doing for a while, pushing it back to make sure the season um, was not uh, interrupted in any way to ensure whatever punishment they might get, it would come after, um, you know, wh whatever season they happen to be in at the time. I, I don't know if that's true. I just know that pe some people thought that, but th there's a way with good lawyers to extend this stuff. If you want to extend it, it's not always best big picture for your program because the cloud hovering over your program um, can, can often be, uh, problematic in and of itself in terms of recruiting and everything else. But if you want to extend it, you can. And so I'd be surprised if the NCAA levels any penalties on any schools um, that would impact the 2020 NCAA tournament. 
the only way that it could be impacted, I, I believe, or the most likely way, would be, as you point out, if somebody self-imposed a tournament ban, self-imposed uh, penalties. Um, I, I, Louisville obviously did that uh, back in 2016. Uh, I might have misheard you. I think you said that they self-imposed when they weren't good enough to go. Um, they were actually very good. They were top 10 that year. I think I conflated or confused. Was it Syracuse that self-imposed when they weren't good enough to go then? I think that's right. Yes. I think Syracuse self-imposed when it was like – I think self, Syracuse waited until they like lost some games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I reckon, and then they were like, hey, you know what? We're going to postseason ban ourselves. Uh, Louisville, on the other hand, and that's why I really thought it was wrong what Louisville did. I understood it. Like it, it was best for the program to get that behind you. But they had two grad transfers there. Um, on that team, Damian Lee and Trey Lewis, I guess, who went there specifically to have an opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament. And they were, I don't know where they were ranked at the time that Louisville decided to do what it did, but they were clearly in this, in the NCAA tournament and they finished seventh at Ken Palm. So to mid season rip away that opportunity from two grad transfers who only enrolled at your school to play in the NCAA tournament, to rip that away uh, from them, I, I thought was just bad business. I understood it, and I I believe I explained why. I, I, I thought it was the smart thing to do. I just didn't think it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. But to circle back to this one, um, I would imagine, unless people self-impose, that all of these schools – even after receiving notice of allegations in July, will we'll probably, and I, I emphasize the word probably, as opposed to definitely, will probably be eligible for the 2020 NCAA term. I think so, too. Um, all right, a couple more notes for listeners as they uh, try and prepare and figure out who's going to be, what schools are going to get hit and, and when we'll know. Um, I, I double-checked this. Now, when notice of allegations get sent out, they are not mandated by NCAA policy to be made public. Now, since so many of the schools that were involved here, uh, by nature of the federal investigation and them being state schools, um, if the schools in the NCAA don't put this out, uh, then it will be on, uh, frankly, the media uh, to put it out or, or, or file uh, – Freedom of Information Act requests because uh, that, that would be found in, in state documents. So keep an eye on that. These things could get the, – the first two that are going to come down late June, early July uh, could get filed. We might not know for a week or two afterward, depending on FOIA requests or what happens there. Two more quotes I want to get to, and then we can get to the schools, GP. Um, a, a quote that stands out um, – two of them that stand out from Wilcox and Dodd's article. Um, <laughs> one, I couldn't even believe he said this. Uh, he said – uh, they could be more restrictive or less restrictive depending on the kind of violations that were in play here. I wouldn't want to be the first institution to go through that process. Now, what Wilcox is saying in this is that later this year, because of the Rice Commission, there are uh, five cases annually that the NCAA has now allowed itself to have independent uh, people sit on um, – it's committee on infractions and, and part of this whole review process that will bring in an outsider's perspective. And because of that, what Wilcox is saying is, is if you're one of these high-profile schools that's going to get hit with the notice of allegations and are going to be subject to uh, this new enforcement policy we've got going on, I wouldn't want to be the first test case. That's an accurate statement. Uh, I'm just surprised that he said it. Um, because I also think that he is, uh, he is alluding to the fact that you have two high-profile schools that are going to get hit first. What schools might those be? Well, I think the only ones that would qualify here are Kansas, Arizona, and Louisville. 
Now we can get to our guesses on six, and I do want to. I do want to have each of us uh, send our best guesses at the six that are going to get hit here. But I wonder if because the government perish, because the government said to the NCAA, you need to hold off on your stuff till we're done our stuff. Well, when the first case wrapped in October, and that primarily dealt with the likes of NC State and Kansas, and to a lesser extent, you know, Arizona, LSU, et cetera, et cetera. Might the schools we see here that get hit the first two and then the, the next four later in the summer be schools that were more dealt with in the October trial as to stuff that we saw come out in the April one? There is some overlap between each school, but that's something that I, I'm, frankly, I'm in the dark on, and I'm also a little bit in the dark on why it's six now. There's still going to be more later. Um, what schools will or won't get hit? There are fascinating scenarios in a number of schools also, by the way, Parrish. You know, Lamont Evans, the I don't want to say the majority, but a lot of what was pinned against him in the trial, he did bad stuff at Oklahoma State. He was arrested while he was at Oklahoma State, but a lot of it was when he was at South Carolina. So how is the NCAA going to handle a situation like that? How does it handle a situation with Lamont Evans, period, when he's at Oklahoma State for a year? That's when he gets, um, that's when he gets pinched. Brad Underwood is the coach there. He's not even at Oklahoma State in, anymore. Uh, NC State. Dennis Smith got paid $40,000, and that money was transferred by a former assistant coach. Well, everyone that was there is now gone. How do you punish that school? Will NC State be one of the six? That's why I think it's going to be extremely messy. It's a necessary problem for the NCAA, but I don't know. I'm not sure who the six are going to be. Do you want to take a stab at at who those might be, or do you have any other thoughts on the story before we get to that? I guess I'd say this. Um, the NCAA has made it clear for decades that who is and is not there is not going to be um, the determining factor in whether schools are punished or not. Um, punishment can be more lenient, more um, uh, just more lenient if if the cast of characters who committed these violations are, are no longer connected to the school. That's why sometimes schools um, go ahead and pull the go ahead and make changes in advance so they can say we tried to handle this on our own um but the fact that you know the nc state staff is no longer at nc state doesn't save nc state um you know memphis was punished after john calipari left for things that happened on john calipari's watch umass was punished after john calipari left Mm -hmm. for things that happened on on john calipari's watch and so uh, we could argue for days about whether that's fair or right, but there really is no argument about whether it is. And so I, I think schools will be punished um, based on things that happened um, within their program, regardless of whether the people who allegedly did these things are still parts of their program. And so I would assume that, uh, yes, NC State will be one of the six. To me, the most obvious one, and I think this would be the, the most obvious first one, probably. And you, you tell me if you disagree. Okay. Louisville, right? I mean, that's pretty easy. They're on probation. They have Adidas doing a deal for a player that they actually enrolled. Um, members of the coaching staff were aware and involved. There's video evidence of all of this. There's testimony backing it up. It's accepted fact that Adidas, in coordination with the Louisville staff, um, cheated to get a player. Like to me, that's that's the simplest of all of these cases. The Louisville would, I I bet, I I bet my life almost. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> that they're gonna get a notice of allegations. No, 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 I no, no, no. no, no you're not. Listen, you're. Cr- 
Yes. All right. If that's the terms, then I agree. Like, I'd bet almost my life that Louisville is going to get a notice of allegations. It's the NCAA, so Paris, don't put that much on it. Uh, <laughs> but I thought you were going to say I'd bet almost my life that Louisville is going to be one of the first two. Just don't go that far. I can't I can't lose you. The NCAA, it's not reliable when it comes to that kind of stuff. But ultimately, it would be, uh, frankly, the, the stunner of all stunners, right, if they did not receive one. Uh, we do agree on that. Continue. Um. So – Louisville, I would assume, um, is I would assume. I'm not going to bet my life, just to be clear. Okay. But I would assume is one of the first two, okay. because a lot of that stuff connected to that program came out last in 2018. So they've had time to work on that. Um, and again, it's like, how much work do you even need to do? It's on video for crying out loud. Uh, you've got uh, yeah. you've got people t- t- admitting to it. Like Brian Bowen's father does not deny it. The Adidas officials do not deny it. Um, the assistant coaches are on video. You know whether Rick Pitino knew or not is still uh, up for debate. But the 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 fact that this happened is not up for debate. The fact that Louisville was involved, not not a victim, but but involved, is not up for debate. I don't see how they don't get punished. It's why you know it's in Chris Mack's contract that he his contract is rolled over, given extended years in for this because they were smart enough to understand this was almost certainly uh, coming at some point. So Louisville uh, seems clear to me. Uh, NC State seems clear to me. Um, You know, and then, I don't know, it would just be guesses. I mean, the big high-profile programs are Arizona and Kansas, um, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence there, but I frankly don't know how the NCAA is going to treat a – Arizona assistant on a wiretap admitting to NCAA violations Um, because what Arizona fans, some, not all, would have you believe is that, you know, Book Richardson was just talking and there's no proof that any of the stuff he said happened. You know, he's on a wiretap talking about nearly going broke buying players. You know, he's on a wiretap saying that his boss was uh, cheating. But, you know, can the NCAA build a case off of that if they have no – evidence to go along with it I, I i simply do not know all right here's my guess at the six and i this is actually hard to hard to guess here i'm gonna say that the four schools who had assistants arrested are going to be for the six because that, i would agree with that by the way okay so that would be auburn oklahoma state arizona and usc those will be for the six purely because as obvious as it is parish if you are an institution that had a member of your men's basketball program arrested, subsequently plead guilty, which all four have, two of which will serve prison time later this summer. A third, almost certainly, Chuck Person is going to serve prison time as well. To me, as you start this from, and I understand, like I can already hear the cynics talking back to us as I listen to the podcast, from a practical perspective, if you're the NCAA, it makes a lot of sense to at least start the process there. Maybe they won't, but I'm guessing it'll be those four. And then the other two, I almost feel like those four are going to be grouped together. And my guess at the other two, I agree with you on Louisville. And then given what we had in the first trial, my guess is Kansas. And I know in saying that, that you know you, you have NC State, that's not a bad guess. You leave out NC State there. Maybe they're coming soon thereafter. I don't know. There are plenty of other schools here that are still going to have to answer to a lot of stuff like TCU, Creighton, 
even DePaul. You can go down the list. I mean, there are tons and tons of schools here, but in this first in this first initial attack, if you will, of of um, notice of allegations, I think you're going to have a lot of the bigger schools that get hit first because, another quote that Wilcox said, the membership, particularly the coaching community, have been frustrated. He told us to Dodd. Those cases started in 2017. We're now in 2019. They want action. I think he's tipping his hand just a little bit there. So some of the other schools um, might come further down the road. So USC, Arizona, Oklahoma State, Auburn. I think those are the second four that come later in the summer. I think Louisville and Kansas will be the two that get hit first there. Um, But if you wanted to tell me that it was Arizona and Louisville, Arizona and Kansas, or any other combination, all I know is I was told it was two high-profile programs. And of those six, there are three that are high-profile. Louisville, Kansas, Arizona. USC, Oklahoma State, and Auburn do not qualify um, unless Wilcox's definition of high profile runs counter to, uh, to any sort of practical thinking. So those are my six. But you've got – would you keep NC State in there and swap it out for anyone else, or what do you think? Oh, let me go through this again. I'm going to go Louisville as a definite. I'm going to go Arizona. I'm going to go – it's almost like a game show we're playing. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I know. Uh, I guess Auburn. I guess you know. I'll just, I'll just, I'll make it simple and say, if you had a coach arrested, you're going to get a notice of allegations. So we'll go Oklahoma State or South Carolina or both. Could it be both? It could, it could be. But if you're going to do that, and then you're what, not going to include USC? Uh, you know, who are you going to yeah. include and then not include? Yeah. Can you imagine? By the way? First of all, think about whenever this comes out, the schools that don't get named in the initial wave. What if it's, what if it's Kansas, Louisville? USC, Oklahoma State, South Carolina, and Auburn, and Arizona isn't named. Or what if it's everyone except Bruce Pearl's Auburn program? It's going to be as much about who doesn't get pinched to start as uh, as anyone else there. But um, this is why when people were cynical about all the wasted money that happened with all this government investigation, I get that. And to a certain extent, I agree. But right, wrong, or otherwise, <laughs> it took the federal government to lead to this kind of uh, inevitable legislation, which, by the way, as Parrish mentioned on the previous podcast, so many coaches actually want. They are see- it, it, it's you know it's probably a pall on our society that we have taxpayers that wound up having the federal government lead to this kind of uh, punishment and adjudication. But that's the only way the NCAA is going to get this. It's just the only way, and you are going to have programs pay to varying degrees. Um, it's going to be a noisy summer here. I did not think that we would get this pre-September, but we are going to. The allegations are going to come down, and it's a matter of what institutions fight, what they can fight, and then what the NCAA can actually use, what they get in interviews. It will be really inter- interesting. And then beyond all that, because of the nature of the evidence at play here and what the NCAA will or won't be able to get, um, I would not put it past us discussing literally three years from now leftover litigation between institutions in the NCAA or individual people in the NCAA because of what's coming from this. I, you know, at a certain point, I know it's interesting for everyone, but it, this this is serious and will millions and millions and millions of dollars are at stake here. And you can best believe that if one side thinks that it's been wronged or treated unfairly or, is, or the NCAA is operating outside of its rule book, then there's going to be serious lawsuits that come down if punishments go the way that institutions believe that they should not. Okay, I'm going to give you my final answer. What was the game show where you had to give your final answer? Uh, that, like, 95% of all game shows ever? 
That might be true, but there was one where they'd actually say, is that your final answer? I think you're referring to who wants to be a millionaire. Who wants to be a millionaire? In the spirit of who wants to be a millionaire, here is my final answer on the six schools that Stan Wilcox said will receive notices of allegations from the NCAA. They are the four schools that had a coach arrested. USC, Arizona, Oklahoma State, Auburn, and the other two will be Louisville and Kansas. Okay, so we agree. I was, I knew we were going to. I really wanted to have some dissent between us. But, Parrish, that's because the most I'm logical. About the, because as I'm thinking about the NC State thing, like, let me, let me be very clear here. I believe that 100% happened, all right? But if Mark Godfrey denies it, assistant coach denies it, um, uh, Dennis Smith and his family won't talk to the NCAA, where do they go with that? They all, all they can do is rely on credible testimony from the case. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, you, you still have Gottfried who's employed. I mean, he's employed in NCAA institutions. So you go there. Um, you rely on compliance officers at NC State. But, yeah, I know. it's Again, this is not – this is not going to be easy. And, oh, by the way, as these things are ongoing, just a reminder here as you finish up your thought, Parish, when a notice of allegation is sent out, the NCAA has already completed its investigation into that specific probe. So there are schools that have already undergone all this, and the NCAA has its information. The NOA doesn't get sent out, and then the NCAA comes on campus and does its thing. That's already happened. So whatever it thinks it has, and it should be substantial, um, that work was done in recent months, and that's why I think mostly it's going to have to deal with schools in the first trial, not what we just went through seven weeks ago. To your point about Gottfried um, still being employed at an NCAA member institution, therefore you know, he is, he's vulnerable to at least, he can't middle finger the NCAA and say, I'm not talking to you the way that Dennis Smith can. As long as he's working under the NCAA umbrella, if they want to talk, uh, he has to talk. If they want him to turn over stuff, he's got to turn over stuff. But, um, and I, I think I've made this point on the podcast before. If so, I, uh, I think I might've, if so, I apologize, but like, let's be honest with each other at this point, every point I've made, I make, I've made before probably, um, <laughs> The perception is always, ooh, you can't lie to the NCAA. Look what happened to Bruce Pearl when he lied to the NCAA. Except you can lie to the NCAA when telling the truth will get you fired. Like, Bruce Pearl should not have lied to the NCAA because telling the truth about Aaron Kraft being at his house would not have gotten him fired. It would have been a secondary violation. He'd have probably lost a recruiting visit or some days on the road or something. But it, the truth would not have got him fired. Therefore, he should have told the truth. Lying is what got him fired. Therefore, he should not have lied. But if you're Mark Godfrey, you have to lie. Again, if we're operating under the assumption that this happened as it was presented, um, that he was involved in a pay-for-play scheme for Dennis Smith, um, you, you can't admit to that. You can't tell the truth about that. When telling the truth, and this is not for you children out there listening, you guys should always tell the truth. But in the real world as adults when telling the truth leads to bad results your best bet might be to just go ahead and lie <laughs> so if you're mark godfrey you just lie and hope you don't get caught right oh man that's <laughs> when yeah, tell I mean... when when okay so if you get what happens if mark godfrey could lie and if he gets caught lying he will get fired it, it, but when never lie, to return to coaching might, in college again get, you might get away with the lie but if you tell the truth, it's game, set, match. If you say, yeah, I was involved in a pay-for-play scheme for Dennis Smith, well, now you're fired. Yeah. If telling the truth guarantees your termination, you have to lie.
So you, so that so clearly he's just going to deny it, and it doesn't mean he he's. Again, we're just operating under the assumption that it did happen. I know Mark would probably say, I'm not lying. I really didn't have anything to do with it. It's fine. Whatever. I'm not. But assuming that it's that that is the way that recruitment went down, he's got no choice but to, to deny it and, and hope that he gets away with it. Yeah. Gottfried is the key to everything. We'll see what <laughs> uh, we'll see what uh, comes with that. But hey, big, uh, big piece of news there. And. Uh, July will enter, I think, with uh, with a certain amount of noise. We just wait to see what schools it'll be. Yeah, as I tweeted yesterday, you know, we'll, it looks like we'll have plenty of content for the I Am College Basketball podcast this summer because, uh, again, a, a, again, it could be in a, a matter of weeks. Should be in a matter of weeks. We're going to know that, according to Stan Wilcox, a, a vice president with the NCAA, we're going to have uh, the names of two high-profile programs that have been uh, hit with a notice of allegations. And as soon as it happens, we'll be right back here talking about it. Let's move on. So the NBA draft is next week. I posted a mock draft. Norlander has now also posted a mock draft. We're going to discuss some prospects next. uh, But first, check this out. Are you looking for a new basketball shoe? If so, this is Gary Parrish here to tell you that the New Balance 2-Way V4 features the groundbreaking use of fuel cell technology with fresh foam creating the ultimate combination of rebound and cushioning. Every step feels explosive and dynamic, and the upper construction features a lightweight textile that's supportive and breathable. So whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the 2-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the 2-Way at newbalance.com. The all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped with everything you need to break free from the dull work week and embark on an adventurous weekend with your family. The Hyundai Santa Fe's features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, standard third-row seating, available dual wireless charging pads. You've got the H-Track all-wheel drive so you can take on those dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or the third-row seating gets your whole family in to experience the thrill together. The dual wireless charging pads make sure that no one gets stuck in the great outdoors with a dead cell phone. Think about those adventurous activities you can do. Like me, taking a ski trip up with the family, maybe going on a camping expedition, anything and everything. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. So the NBA draft is next week. Norlander filed his mock draft this morning. I scanned it, and what I realized pretty quickly is that we have the same seven players. Zion Williamson, John Moran, R.J. Barrett, DeAndre Hunter, Jarrett Culver, Darius Garland, and Kobe White going one through seven. And there really is, there's certainly debate one through seven, but there really is no debate about number one. It will be and it should be uh, Zion Williamson. But let's start here because I was asked to write a column for CBS Sports. uh, It's sort of addressing the question, is Zion Williamson worth the hype? And the, the, the first point I made is that, of course, he's worth the hype. Because the hype has worked so much. I mean, he he enters the NBA with um, as much hype as anybody since LeBron James. And he changes your franchise in terms of national attention, national television appearances, social media presence. Like, he is great for business. And that's not why he'll be the number one pick in the draft, but it is part of him being uh, the number one pick in the draft. And so, of course, he's worth the hype because the hype is worth millions and millions and millions and millions for a lot of people, the New Orleans Pelicans included. But the second question is like, will he live up to the hype? And so let me start there. Are you a believer 
that Zion Williamson is going to be a franchise player, like a future top five professional basketball player in the world? I am not. Um, and I teased a little bit at in my mock, just uh, just a quick comment or two. As we head into this draft, uh, it's been refreshing to see a heavy lack, if not entire absence of Zion skeptics. This, you know, this guy's going to flame out. He's going to be a bust. Um, I think that's refreshing uh, because I think it would be easy to go in that way. But I am fascinated with where we are at this point in time because five years from now, seven years from now, what's this guy going to be at the pro level? You know, what is he is he going to be? Let's go to 2026. Is he going to have made five all star games and be a star on the level of LeBron James and Steph Curry? You know, I I don't think so. Uh, maybe he will because of his presence. If he stays healthy and the nature of who he is. But I tell you what, um, Zion is was a supernova in college. Uh, he will still be a star at the NBA level. And even if he is good or really, really good, uh, playing in that market will bury him to a certain degree. Uh, you know, if he's a good player, whatever. It's it's all about the production and what you can produce. But it's different than had he gone to New York, undeniably. Or even if he had gone to, uh, I want to even say like a Phoenix or just a, a next market level above that. Um, if New Orleans is not a winning team, you know how the NBA cycle goes, Paris. You know how the, the news cycle just you know rolls over month over month, in season, off season. When it's as much about what's going to happen as what's not. You know this draft, amazingly. Um, it's not about Zion Williamson. It's not about any of the prospects. It's about where Anthony Davis is going to go and what the Pelicans and Lakers will do with their draft picks or if Boston can manage that. That is, that is the story, um, and that is the power of NBA gossip, of NBA movement. It's the power of how it's always about next year, what's going to happen, not necessarily what's going to happen now. There's been as much discussion, as far as I can tell, Parrish, about the Anthony Davis stuff as the fact that we've got Game 6 without Kevin Durant literally happening tonight. It's been as big of a story, so um, a little surprised at that, but then again, maybe not. But I do think Zion Williamson will be a very good NBA player. I do not think that he will rise to the level of being a top-five guy Um I do have some concerns about the way he plays because of his size. Um, I, I don't think it's an inevitability that he faces some injuries. For all we know, we could look up in a decade and say, you know what? LeBron James and Zion Williamson, freak athletes who were indestructible. LeBron James didn't have the first real injury of his career till this past season. He's, more, he's a decade and a half into his career. Maybe Zion Williams will be the same. I'd love him to be the same. But an, an official guess here as we are on the precipice of draft night um, I'll say Zion Williamson makes multiple all-star games and uh, gets to the level of being a significant piece um, but falls just short of being about where Anthony Davis is evaluated right now. I don't think he'll ever become, from an on-court perspective, as valuable as an AD. So put me in the top 10 to top 20 range for him for the prime of his career. Um, Maybe that's a little bit of a hedge GP, but... um, while I could see him being an absolute superstar, I'm just going to stop a little bit short of that and uh, and say that he'll be really, really good, but not necessarily amazingly great. Obviously, so many things can prevent you from becoming the superstar so many people think you're going to become, injuries being the most obvious, Greg Oden being a great example. Um, but um, I really do think, and perhaps this is just an unfair place to set the bar, but I do think it's... I think it's probably a reasonable place to set the bar, given everything we know. You know, he's an 18-year-old who was just the best player in college basketball by a significant margin, even though he was on the same team as the guy 
a year earlier was considered the best prospect his age in the world. Um, he had a player efficiency rating that was five points higher than anybody else's in college basketball. He uh, posted the highest PER in like a decade um, for a college basketball player. He did it all for the number, you know, a team that won, uh, that earned, secured, I should say, the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament. Like he was awesome um, in every way. And I really do think when you combine the fact that he was the best player and the best prospect, like anything less than a Hall of Fame career is probably technically going to be considered disappointing. And that is bizarre to think about. And I know I said a moment ago that it might be unfair, but I really do think that that's, that's probably the proper place to put the bar. You know, if we're going to say, did Zion Williamson live up to the hype? If he doesn't have a Hall of Fame career, the answer is probably no. Man, that is unfair. No matter who you are, even LeBron, you go back to when LeBron James entered the league and he seemed, he from my, from my memory, LeBron James seemed more of a sure thing, even coming out of high school than Zion Williamson through one year of college. Um, yeah. Can we bottom line it then? Will Zion Williamson make the Hall of Fame one day? And I, you know, listen, I know this is like super long picture and all that stuff. And the kid just deserves to have his career. But hey, we're, we're setting the table under these terms. I will say, <laughs> I will say, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm, I think he, he sneaks in. I don't think it's going to be some slam dunk case. I'll say yes, unless injuries prevent it. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, unless, you know, if we look up at 20 years and go, he would have been if not for that knee issue. He would have been if not for, you know, whatever. Um, I, I think as, as long as we don't have to say if it weren't for the injuries, I, I do believe he'll be a, a Hall of Fame player. I'm, I'm a believer in him. I think he's going to be terrific. Uh, I do think it's important to note that 18-year-olds, and I, I believe he'll probably, I think he'll be 19 by the time the season starts, but you know, teenagers don't win in the NBA. They just don't. And so um, it, it, it will be a process, you know, and it, it is for everybody, and it will be for him. Um, it'll be a while before New Orleans is good even if he's show signs of being great. Um, but I do think he'll be great. And I, you're exactly right. Him being in new Orleans is way different than if he were in New York or LA, but I will say we live in a, uh, in a world, an NBA world where the biggest star in the sport, you know, has spent much of his career playing in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Kevin Durant became a star in Oklahoma city. Russell Westbrook became a star in Oklahoma City. I think it's reasonable to call Damian Lillard a star playing in Portland. And so that is, I don't want to say the one league because like Brett Favre was a star in Green Bay, Wisconsin, but it is certainly a league. Market size, I think market size matters more in baseball than, than it does in the NBA. Like it's hard for Mike Trout to be as visible as he needs to be, that he should be, you know, playing in Anaheim. Whereas if he were playing in New York, you know, he would be something bigger than Aaron Judge. So I think it matters in baseball and, and it, it matters everywhere, I guess. But the fact that the, 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 the king himself was a star in, in Cleveland, I, I think, suggests you can be in that league a star anywhere. As long as you got to get the playoffs, man. All those guys and teams you just mentioned have been perennial, uh, if not borderline perennial playoff teams. If you're not getting to the playoffs, your relevance drops off the cliff. There's no question. I mean, he's got a, you know, they, they've got to put good pieces around him. And that's why I think it's interesting, the reports, and we'll get back to actual prospects in a moment, but the, I think it's interesting that the reports are that 
Um, New Orleans isn't just like trying to get the third pick in the draft from the New York Knicks. Like they want to bring back a player, somebody who is an all-star level guy at the very least to put with Zion and put with Drew Holiday. Like they're not trying to start from scratch here. They feel like they've got decent enough pieces, good enough pieces to compete for um, a, a maybe, depending on how this thing unfolds, to compete for a playoff spot pretty quickly, if not immediately. And so I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I, I, I think it's, it's probably better for Zion because, you know, there's a big difference between being on a, uh, you know, a 25 win team and a, and a 43 win team that can maybe make the playoffs. Even if you're just um, sneaking in as an eight seed, you are still playing postseason basketball, you know, presumably against the Golden State Warriors in the first round. Like that's, that's the type of stage where, um, that's the type of state starts need to be on. So I'm with you. It, um, we need to see him in the postseason um, um, sooner rather than later. Even though if um, it, it it might for for some pretty obvious reasons um, be later rather than sooner. We'll see. Um, is it clear to you? It's clear to everybody that the Pelicans should take Zion Williamson number one, and most people have the Grizzlies taking John Morant number two. Is it? clear to you that John Morant is the better prospect than R.J. Barrett? John Morant, uh, yes, because John Morant to me has uh, to me, John Morant has the highest floor of any of the top three. And in fact, I can't remember the last time that you had a lockstep consensus one, two, three. You know, many drafts, you'll get a consensus number one by the time you get there, um, even a top two. A one, two, three like this, Zion, Ja, RJ, uh, this is a rarity in the NBA. I do think Ja is is the right choice for the Grizzlies at number two. Uh, love his floor, um, love his demeanor, love his game, love so much about him. If I, I think it is possible, uh, and I know that there have been a few voices out there that have said that Ja Morant will wind up having a better NBA career than Zion Williamson. I absolutely could see that happening. Um, RJ Barrett at three, I think does make sense, and I think that there is a fair line that has been drawn. Like there is a serious line of demarcation between those three, and then once you get to the rest of the the field. And even though you and I have one through seven coincidentally identical, I did not uh, refer to your mock draft before I did mine. Obviously, you did yours and have been doing yours before you even knew what I was going to do. Um, four and below, uh, there's a lot of room for debate. But no, for me. Morant, clear two, love him at two. Think I love him at Memphis. Um, I think that's a really good fit. Uh, I know that uh, with Conley having been there so long, I think it's just a, a really ideal changing of the guard and just the way that Morant was brought up, the style he played in college, who he is. I think it's a really good fit. And then Barrett's already – I mean, when Barrett is talking publicly about this is my only workout, I don't play with the Knicks, this is where I want to be. I mean, this is what's going to happen. It's going to go Zion, Ja, then RJ on draft night. And uh, – <laughs> And I'll just wrap it with this. I mean, to me, R.J. Barrett, who was an awesome prospect, was – and I wrote this in my mock. Don't say that R.J. Barrett was overshadowed at Duke. That's not the case. He was the team's best player when Zion was out. He was responsible for Duke maintaining its status as a one seed, led the team in scoring, set plenty of ACC uh, freshman records. R.J. Barrett was an awesome college player. He is not being underrated now. He's not being overlooked now. He is rightfully, in a consensus fashion, considered the top three right alongside Jaw and maybe just a tick behind Zion, but they are a group unto themselves. So no, not at all. People are not underestimating R.J. Barrett. Uh, John Morant makes more sense for Memphis. R.J. Barrett makes perfect sense for the Knicks. And whether right or wrong, I can absolutely see a scenario, Parrish, where we look up five years from now and R.J. Barrett has been averaging 21 points, seven rebounds, and being a, a, a 
really good player, and it just it hasn't mattered because it's the Knicks. Like I don't know. To me, he is the most Knicks player possible. I think he can thrive there. I think the franchise will be better for having him, but I don't necessarily think that this is going to be what turns the franchise. Like I, if you told me three years from now the Knicks are going to be right back where they are, Barrett's been good, but they're a top three pick in the in the draft because of all this. I could totally see that happening. I think Barrett's going to be able to score right from the jump. Like he's gonna. I think he'll be scoring next year. And then it'll come down to like, you know, what, what's New York able to put around him? Obviously, the plan until you know two nights ago um, was to maybe if you don't do a deal for Anthony Davis that involves that pick, you have R.J. Barrett, um, you know, playing with Kevin Durant and who knows what else. Um, obviously, now that's not going to be the case because KD's not going to play next season with that ruptured Achilles. And R.J. is in a weird situation here because um, I, I think he I think he's pretty clearly going to be picked by New York, but maybe then shipped literally anywhere, you know, in, in a possible three-team deal um, to, to get Anthony Davis back in New York. Who knows if it'll go that way, but it's on the table. So whereas, you know, if you're Zion Williams and you know where you're playing next season, if you're John Morant, you know where you're playing next season, even though if those two players are off the board and you're R.J. Barrett, you know that you're being selected next. There is no scenario under which he would not be selected next. Um, it's really up in the air about where he's going to play. Could be New York, could in theory be in New Orleans with Zion, but it also could be, you know, who knows where, mm-hmm. uh, given that uh, the Pelicans, Lakers, Knicks, and Celtics at least are all you know, trying to find – proper framework for a three-team deal that could, in theory, send the number three, three pick in the draft, R.J. Barrett, you know, to, to, uh, to almost anywhere. So it's an interesting place for him to be a, a week out of the draft. But, um, yeah, he's going to be a top three pick. And uh, I don't know whether he'll be great, but I do know that he'll, he'll score. I can't imagine a scenario where he's not scoring in that league. Um, we both have Darius Garland going in the top six. Um, some people have him as high as – four and it's interesting to me and not because i don't buy it or see it or believe it but this time last year i don't think anybody would have had darius garland in the top four um maybe not even in the top six and then he plays five games suffers a knee injury and now he's a consensus top half of the lottery guy that's a pretty unique situation isn't it thought just the same as i built out my mock i thought here's a point guard who had minimal play um even less than Kyrie when he was at Duke and Kyrie had the injury there. Uh, now, that didn't affect Kyrie Irving, obviously. His stock was really high. But Garland had much less exposure, and he's a rare case where the injury uh, with limited playing time did not affect him. Uh, you had like, a, No, here's my thing. Not only it did a, it, it almost helped him. Yeah, negatively affect him. Right, right. It yeah. Negatively affect him. It, like, you can argue Darius Garland. You'd almost say this about nobody. Hey, it, where do you think this person is going to be picked right now? Um, a ninth. Okay, what happens then if he suffers a knee injury and only plays five games? Ooh. You wouldn't say top five, but that is essentially what happened to Darius Garland. Crazy. And he didn't work out for – see, what's, and this doesn't prohibit teams. You, you see this in, uh, in football and basketball where a, a player – for whatever reason, won't work out for a team, and the team selects him anyway. Um, so Garland did not work out for the Lakers. Doesn't mean the Lakers won't wind up with him uh, if they wind up keeping that fourth pick overall. Um, he's a nice player. I, I'll admit, like as I'm doing these mocks, uh, you know, I try my best to assemble the players um, in the best marriage of how good I think they will be as pros uh, versus acknowledging, um, in referencing, I reference like 
five or six different mocks just to check myself afterward, referencing that there is certainly um, uh, a narrative out there with players. Like, personally, I wouldn't have Darius Garland in my top ten. But I know there's no shot that he's falling out of the top ten. If he does, I'd be surprised. So I place him in there because Phoenix needs a point guard. Garland makes sense. He sets up as the, as the second-best point guard. I would take Kobe White over Darius Garland personally. But there's enough buzz around him where he goes there. Um, I think he'll be a fine NBA player, I think. Uh, I love watching him as a prospect before he got to college. I know that. Like I know that he is capable of being a really talented uh, kind of point guard. And had he played for Vanderbilt, uh, Bryce Drew probably still has that job, to, to be frank. But... Um, but his, yeah, his situation, Parrish, is fascinating. Maybe we wind up. I do think this draft is going to have, one, a ton of trades. And I think you're going to have a lot of surprises just in terms of, like, because I think there's a lot of disagreement in the teens. There's a ton of disagreement in the second round. So I think you could have some names pop way up or some names drop big. If you told me that Garland wound up going 12th, I would agree with that. But that's just not the expectation. That would that would surprise me there. I just don't see that him. I don't see him falling out of the top seven, let alone the top ten. Well, there's a report from Jonathan Gavoni at ESPN, and it's it's a report from like a week ago. So th- th- these things change, um, I, I, or at least the perception of them changes, public perception of them changes. But the report that was that Phoenix was interested in moving the sixth pick um, for a veteran point guard, or at least uh, a point guard already in the league, because they didn't think Darius Garland would be available at at six and so they, again they, they might be wrong or the report might be wrong but that was the report that phoenix does not believe garland will be there uh, at six if he is they'll snatch him up but if they don't think he will be so um it's interesting i just can't really remember a similar situation you bring up Kyrie, but like Kyrie was probably going to be the number one pick in that draft before that season even started so he just like maintained his spot um with, like I, I can't really think of any other great or even I, I can't think of any other examples of a player being projected one way coming out of high school and then suffering an injury, barely playing, and then being projected to go even higher than most people thought he was going to go in high school. But that it's it appears to be the case for Darius Garland. On the opposite side of that is Romeo Langford. He's like the opposite in terms of examples of what happened because everybody had him as a top 10 pick. Uh, coming out of high school, and then he goes to Indiana, and they're not good. He scores and competes, but doesn't shoot it well. And, you know, good luck trying to be a shooting guard in the NBA in 2019 who doesn't shoot it well. Um, but the, he had an injury in his hand, a, a yeah. torn ligament in his shooting hand that at least he and his people would tell you is the reason he didn't shoot it well in that one year at Indiana, even though in the spirit of fairness, he was, he didn't shoot it well, you know, on the grassroots uh, circuit either. But, um, you know, you wonder what would have happened if he would have just done exactly what Darius Garland did, which is said, I'm injured. I'm shutting it down. Would he still be a top 10 pick? Did he hurt himself from a draft perspective by playing in the same way that Darius Garland seems to maybe have helped himself by not playing? Potentially. Yes. Although I remember back in, mid to late November, just, you know, hearing a, a little bit of dissenting opinion on, on Langford, some guys being higher than others, but had he done what what uh, Garland did, I think there's a, a high probability, actually, that he would be a top 10 pick. We've got a little bit of disparity on him. You've got him going 12th, Romeo Langford. I've got him going 16th. That's more like, that's where I think he f- 
frankly, he, he falls fairly in this. I think he's got a shot at being a little more successful in the pros than he was at Indiana for a number of reasons. Uh, significantly, significantly less pressure. I think the nature of who he is and how he plays his game is more endeared to the NBA style than college. But, uh, yeah, I mean, credit to him for playing the way that he did through an injury. Um, I do think it was legitimate. I do think it had an impact on his overall uh, production. I don't think it's an, I don't I don't think it's an excuse that warrants uh, maybe what his him and his people might have you believe. But yeah, this is gonna this is gonna hurt him on draft night. Uh, again, you've got him going 12. I've got him going a little further uh, in 16. I think he's floating right on that lottery line. And the last prospect I want to get to is Bol Bol because he gets a lot of attention um, because he's a unique talent and probably the most divisive prospect in this draft. It, it, it all comes down to what do you focus on? Um, the obvious um, incredible skill set for a human his size or the fact that centers are devalued in the NBA now, that bigs who can't play in, who can't guard in space um, are often rendered um, unplayable. Like what are you going to focus on with him? You've got him going 21st. I've got him going uh, 17th. Um, but I'm, uh, you know, our former colleague and 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 current still friend Sam Vecini was tweeting about Bobo this morning, and I think I'm with him. He was like, I just, you know, I, I see the talent, but I just, it's not. I'm not. I don't. I don't want to bet on it, you know, because what is the upside with him? Like, will he ever be able to play in to guard in space? He will always, be, you know, he he could be from day one be a, a a stretch five you know somebody who which which is a, a real value on the offensive end of the court but my god how are you going to play him if he doesn't drastically improve and given that he's not just tall he's i, I don't know the proper nice way to say it but he's 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 not tall like other tall people are tall he looks different does that make sense <laughs> Sure. Yeah. No. His body type, the way he's actually built, uh, looks different. He's built oddly, uh, you know. Yeah. And he's also very frail. Showed up at the um, combine and weighed like almost nothing, um, and and way less than he reportedly weighed when he enrolled at at Oregon. So there's just a lot of stuff there. Not to mention foot surgery. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff there that I guess there's a place in the draft, a little bit like Michael Porter Jr., where you just say, "All right." At this point, it's worth rolling the dice on him. But to me, it's outside of the lottery. It's not inside the lottery. I think it's going to be outside the lottery, although in my capsule on my mock, I said, I don't know this to be, but if you told me that there's a team that has Bull Bull as high as six on this board and there's another team that has him in the 40s, I'd absolutely believe it. I just think that he is the polarizing player in this draft for so many of the reasons that you just mentioned. Plus, he has had criticism uh, – attached to him for how much fire is really there in the game how much does he does he want to play the game how much does he love the game um when you're a center and there's already issues on top of that i think that can be a compound problem um i think he will wind up getting i've got him going uh, you mentioned we've got a four pick disparity i've got him 21st you got him 17th I, I think there's a high probability we'll have a lot of trades in the first round and whoever takes him i think will acquire him via trade because they're going to have um they're going to have the insurance on their own roster there where it's almost uh it's a, it's a bonus it's a beneficial add-on if he hits great it's an amazing coup um i don't i would not be stunned if we looked up on draft night and bowl goes eighth because that means someone clearly would have moved up because they are going to buy in they're going to go all in on but i think it's less likely than that that he winds up going um in the lottery we both have him outside of there um 
but he'll be fascinating. I mean, we had him low on our preseason top 101 at last season. We were too low on him after seeing him play uh, in the time that he did with Oregon, but still I think that a lot of those questions still dog him. Parrish, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you real quick. Um, yeah, we, were, we are fairly similar, not, not, not crazily similar, but we've got a couple of um, – couple of guys we disagree with, I'd, I think, uh, pretty aggressively on. Enfiandu uh, Cabangeli out of Florida State. I've got him going 19th. You don't have him in the first round. I've got Matisse Thibel going 23rd. You don't have him going in the first round. And then uh, inversely, you've got Admiral Schofield going 23. I've got him going 31, so right at the start of the second round. And then you've got Lou Dort going 24, whereas I've got him going 33rd. So those are about the four players where we have, I think, the greatest disparity among our top 35 picks or so. Any of those stand out to you in terms of why you are pro or con or a, a buyer or a seller uh, in regard to me or the general consensus of where you stand with those guys? Well, for Admiral Schofield, I would just say this. Um, uh Good size, incredible body, incredible work ethic, has shown the ability to shoot the basketball from the perimeter, got better every year. And there's a quote that he delivered after a game in the SEC this season that has always stood with me, um, or stayed with me, I should say. And he was asked, you know, he hit a couple of big shots late. I, I, it feels like it was a game against LSU, but it might not have been. But either way, it was an SEC game, and he – you know, hit a couple of shots late, had a big scoring game, and, you know, did the on-court interview post-game. And he was asked something about, I don't know, whatever it is you ask people at the, you know, in a post-game interview. And he said, you know, my, I've never wanted to be the leading scorer, not on a team, not in a game. All I've ever wanted to do is be my coach's favorite player. That's it. I just want to be my coach's favorite player. And... If some people said that, you'd roll your eyes. It seems sincere from him. And when you talk to that Tennessee staff, whether it's Rick or anybody else, um, they will tell you he's their favorite player because there's just no red flags there. Like, he does what you want him to do. And I think more now than ever, the fewer red flags, the better. Um, and I just – I like him. I, I think he's he's built the right way. He moves the right way. He has the proper focus, mindset, work ethic. And again, he's shown the ability to shoot the ball from the perimeter. I, I, I can't promise you he's going to go in the 20s. I bet you he's on an NBA roster next season. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I, I hesitate a little with Schofield only because a year ago today, he was not considered a draftable prospect. He, I even wrote in my capsule, he has made a bigger leap than anyone year over year. Zion included anyone. And no one has done more for their draft stock in a year's time to me than Admiral Schofield and what he was able to prove. John Morant? Oh, you're right. John Morant. <laughs> well, you know what, though? Maybe, Maybe not. not. You I know what? You. Maybe not because John Morant still, I think, would have had a distant chance of getting drafted last year. Back into the second round, he wasn't a complete unknown. When I spoke with Matt McMahon at Murray State, it was about a year ago when he was talking about the fact that Morant was coming back. Like he was, he was on the radars. He has just made a significant jump into the into the top end of the first round. Whereas I don't think Schofield had any shot a year ago of getting drafted. But point well, point is still well established there. Morant is right there. Um, he is was, the thing you said about Schofield. I completely agree with. Um, I wonder if some team might try and get him via trade in, in a bargain in the second round, but he's going to be on a roster. I think he's going to stick along with his teammate Grant Williams. Um, as for a guy I have rated highly that you didn't have in the first round, I love Matisse Thibel. I think he is going to last, again, barring injuries, easily 10-plus years in the league. I think he steps into the NBA as a top-20 defender in the, in, the, in the league. I think he's the best all-around defender in the draft. Um, uh, just great length, good specs, 
good attitude. If he falls out of the first round, it's a joke. To me, he is without a doubt one of the 25 to 30 uh, most enticing prospects. It's more on the defensive end than the offensive end, but uh, I stand for Matisse Thibel, and I, I just can't help but think because of how well he's played. I know he's, he, stuck, he stuck around in college, and sometimes that unfairly goes against guys, but it didn't against Schofield, and I don't think it should against Thibel. Uh, we'll see where he lands. Uh, 22 years old, shot 30% from three-point range. Does that bother you at all? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yes, because as the years go on, it feels like it is it is becoming a borderline prerequisite if you play the wing position that you have to shoot better than that. But plenty of guys now, the advancement of, of, of improving your shot from when you're 21-22 to when you're 27-28 in the league, that's getting better and better. And it, I don't know. I feel like for what he does um, – and what team might need him. Being an awesome defender in and of itself, being an A-level defender has to carry significant value. Um, I know the NBA is moving more and more and more toward like all five guys all five guys on the court. You've got to be able to shoot from 18 feet and out. I get that. Maybe Thibel gets there. But I think that's why he's not, you know, if, if Thibel's, if you, the number you just referenced, if that was 39%, I think that he would be a lottery pick. I think that's the only thing that's holding him back. Um, and to be clear, uh, your mock draft is two rounds. It was published today. I believe my next one will be two rounds, which I'm dreading. Do you hate doing that, by the way? Oh, it's, Dude, I, I hate it. <laughs> people I want hate- it, though. I, but cause You know why I hate it, though? Because, real quick, because we got a, a full disclosure. My son is up in his crib, so we got to bounce here. But, um... <laughs> But uh, the real life of podcasting as a parent, um, because I think it's particularly this year, but it's in most years. Once you get to that 45 spot and beyond it, they're so interchangeable. A, a person that you don't have on your board, but you might have, say, you know, just off of it could end up going 46. But the difference between them is so thin. And so you just hate if you wind up missing with those kind of players. I just hate all the comments. That's what I mean. Okay. Like writing 60 comments. is It feels like a homework assignment. Oh, it is. Yeah. My, my mock draft is like 5,400 words. Yes, it's, yeah. it's a big thing. Like writing a column is not homework. It's like That's what I got into this to do. Writing comments for 60 players very much feels like you're doing homework. Um, now, it's worthwhile homework because the page views are off the charts. That mock draft, this, will also, this, will, this is true and it will depress you. Your mock draft will get more page views than literally any college basketball column you writ- you wrote all year, <laughs> it, it it just will yeah. like it's and it won't be cl- it will not be close right. So it's a worthwhile homework assignment, but man, it does feel like a, a homework assignment. Here's the point I was going to make, and then you're going to go get your kid, and I'm going to go. Uh, I don't know what I'll do. Um, get ready for a radio show. Um, my my mock draft right now is only one round, so. Uh, but any of the guys you have in the 20s that I don't have in my first round, I would have in the 30s. And here's the truth. Um, I don't think there's much difference in this draft or most draft between anybody picked 25 and 35, 23 and 36. Like, I think once if somebody says you're, you're a guaranteed top five pick, it means you're a guaranteed top 10 pick. If somebody says you're a guaranteed lottery pick, you're probably going in the top 25. If somebody says, man, I think you're, you're going to go in the top 25, you could slip to 40. And so it, yeah. we can have preferences on these players. You like Dybul, I like Schofield. They're all in the same range. Um, they're going to be in that you know twenty-five to forty range, and I, I think most mock drafts would reflect that. I think most big boards would would also reflect that. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry MF and Teagle. He's a legend. Shouts to the little homie Larnell. And remember, subscribe. I on College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcast. Rate it five stars. Leave a nice comment, and we will talk to you again next week in advance of the 2019 
NBA draft. Till then, take care.